this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners. Dana Stevens here. As you might already know, my book titled Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century is now available for purchase. And now Culture Gabfest listeners can get a great deal on the audiobook edition of Cameraman, which is read aloud by me. If you go to slate.com slash Dana, I have my own URL and I love it. You can get the audiobook for just $13.99. That's $10 off the list price. Then you can listen to the audiobook in your preferred podcast app. There's no standalone app to download and no subscription fees. And please note that this audiobook sale is brought to you by Slate. That means that if you buy my audiobook to listen to on Slate, your purchase not only supports me and my work, it also helps support the important, distinctive Slate journalism you depend on. This is a limited time sale, so don't just sit there. Go to slate.com slash Dana. Again, that's slate.com slash Dana. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Double Double Rogan in Trouble edition. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. On today's show, Joel Cohen, he of the Cohen Brothers, has struck out on his own and directed a film version of Shakespeare's Macbeth that stars Denzel Washington and the title character and Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. We'll be joined by Slate's own Isaac Butler. And then non-dead straight white male Joe Rogan, and he's a huge presence in podcasting. The kind of, maybe, I'm still not sure, alt-right adjacent host may now be in trouble for promoting COVID misinformation. We'll be joined by also Slate's own Justin Peters. And finally, the slut-shaming of green M&Ms. Joining me today is Julia Turner, uh, the Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, Steve. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. You holding up okay after a busy week, no doubt? Uh, it was more than a busy week. It was really the most <laughs> surprising week of my life. Like, I doubt, Steve, that you're enough on social media to have figured this out, but my book is kind of a hit. Like, it's selling much better than I or the publisher expected, and it's kind of like becoming a hot book right now. I mean, not to brag, but I swear to God that is actually what's happening out there. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> JK. That's great, Dana. Uh, that's such great news. I could not be happier for you. Uh, all right. Are you ready to make a show? Or are you too big for us now? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you one last week. I deign to do one last Slate Culture Gap Fest before I step on you like rungs on the ladder. <laughs> Clearly, the message of Macbeth did not land with Dana Stevens. <laughs> all right. Well, the tragedy of Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's bleakest plays. Arguably, it has a lot of competition in that regard. Nonetheless, it tells the story of the brutal murder of the King of Scotland and its many lurid consequences, but it's scarcely a play only about political violence. It's about human beings as they can be broken on the wheels of their own conscience. This version is directed by Joel Cohen in the moodiest throwback black and white. It stars Denzel Washington as Macbeth and Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. And uh, it has to be pointed out, Catherine Hunter, as all three witches, is uh, a revelation in this film. Dana, will you set up a clip for us? Sure. I believe the clip we have to listen to is one of the most famous speeches from Macbeth, one that you might have had to memorize in your high school classroom. It's the, is this a dagger which I see before me speech? So you're just going to hear Denzel Washington as Macbeth, as he, if you want to get a visual, as he sort of stumbles down this long hallway, trying to contemplate whether or not he can carry off the murder of King Duncan. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? 
Let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not? Fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight. Or art thou a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat oppressed brain? I see thee yet. In form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalest me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools or the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still. All right, well, we're joined by Isaac Butler, a very extremely good friend of the program. He, the author also of uh, the forthcoming book. Is it out now, Isaac? It is now out. Yes, you can go, you can go get it wherever books are sold. Okay, and it is The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. I've read it. It's fa- really fabulous. It's deep and in its way zippy. It's uh, hard to be both things. You, you really you nailed it. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's uh, let's dive right in. You know, um, you know, Macbeth is the shortest of the tragedies. It's not a very long or arduous play to perform. It gets done as early as middle school. We've all seen it a million times. It is thickly covered with what I call the grime of familiarity. You just one greatest hit after another. The dagger speech tomorrow and tomorrow. The weird witches. Uh, how did Joel Cohen do with it? Did he wipe off the grime? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways he did, uh, in part because he has such a uh, refined visual sensibility. You know, he's such a brilliant cinematic stylist that I think he really brought that to bear on the work. So, uh, you know, for folks who haven't seen it or seen ads for it or whatever, uh, it's all shot on sound stages in black and white in a four, three aspect ratio. It borrows from a lot of different kind of modernist design movements from symbolism to uh, especially German expressionism. Uh, and he also invents a, a new subplot that he puts within the play, uh, dealing with the Thane of Ross. Um, And I think what he finds within the material is a lot of both, you know, plot and character and theme that rhymes with, you know, the rest of his work that he did with his brother Ethan over the past few decades. Um, In many ways, it feels like it connects very deeply to Blood Simple. You know, you have this couple that's conspiring to commit a murder that is uh, doesn't realize it, but are totally out of their depth. You know, um, that's a very Coen Brothers-y theme. Uh, as is, you know, a world that is perhaps capricious and not understandable and characters who get lost within that. Um, I don't know. I, I was totally blown away with it by it. I watched it like twice in two days, once by myself to review it. And then I loved it so much that I watched it uh, with my wife and I, I loved it even more the second time. And I, I was just I just thought it was really surprising and great. Mm, Dana Isaac was uh, blown away and reblown away. What about you? I wanted to have precisely the response that Isaac did. And so I have to say there was a slight sense of deflation upon seeing it. Mm. I think that the production design is gorgeous. That look, that German expressionist look that Isaac described. I mean, gorgeous isn't even quite the right word. It's it's expressive. You know, it, it, it's it, incredible. It, yeah. it accomplishes the goal of telling the story through design and lighting in a way and cinematography in a way that's quite extraordinary. The cinematographer Bruno Del Bonnell is somebody who's worked a lot with the Coens and who obviously did a lot of really meticulous thinking about how the movie should look and why it should look that way. And we can talk more about what what some of those details are. And I loved that part of it. I loved that it had such an original vision. Um, But some of the things that Isaac mentioned, for example, the creation of that entirely new composite character, the Thane of Ross, who I want to talk about, Denzel Washington's performance to some degree, and I feel like I'm treading on dicey ground there, but I was so excited to see him as Macbeth. He is a wonderful actor, but I'm not sure that he works that well in this role. I think that he may be miscast, or maybe it's that he and Francis McDormand seem like they're in slightly different performance registers in a way that never made me feel that they were in cahoots. There was something emotionally that didn't cohere about this Macbeth for me, even though many, many parts of it are, are beautifully done. 
Macbeth should be wrenching, and I didn't feel wrenched. I felt aesthetically um, fascinated, but but never emotionally involved. Well, that connects back, Dana, to your responses to previous Cohen films, I think, which is that there's a little bit of an icy remove in them, if I'm remembering some of your prior views correctly. But I found that effective. I The thing that struck me about this performance and this production is that in past iterations of Macbeth, including the one we talked about a few years ago with Marianne Cotillard, right? Um, the main thrust is the psychology of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth themselves, right? It's about how they feel. It's about the ambition. It's about the bloodlust. It's about the um, mess they find themselves in and how they can't extricate themselves. And it's about the emotional condition of that progression for them. And this struck me as a very like post-Trump era Macbeth in that, and, and perhaps this is because of the plot shuffling that you mentioned, Isaac, I felt that we were seeing them from the outside. And I felt actually that the kind of majesty of Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington as actor figures worked in an intentional way where they seem like they're leaders like they're up on this lofty remove they're both taking you know all these lines that you've heard so many times in your life that it's nearly impossible to act them at this point without sounding like you're back on your eighth grade stage um and and really having their way with them but our heart and our perspective is with all the people they rule who are like what the fuck has happened to our country <laughs> like this is a disaster and i i don't recall seeing another macbeth that felt so situated outside their own drama. And I'm sure Isaac can point me to six because he... <laughs> <laughs> no, not necessarily. Um, but that that was, it all, it, I agree with you that I didn't feel like I was as close to them, but they're nutters anyway. Like it felt sort of like the play almost made more sense to be, to me being closer to the people who um, who are less crazy in the, in the production. Steve, what did you make of it? Uh, I well, I I loved it. I I almost couldn't have loved it more. I thought, um, first of all, I thought that that Catherine Hunter's performances, all three witches, a very strong, you know, choice on the part of you know presumably the director. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn, and cauldron bubble. She takes it and runs with it in her own direction. This contorted, you know physicality um, that she brings to it. And to me, this is a play about, um, you know, a, a man who mistakes a curse for a charm and how, so his relationship to the prophecy is what is so critical because what she's telling him about is, 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 is effectively how his own character is going to misread the, own, the, the very words that she's telling to him. And instead of revealing the future to him, what it does is tie the noose of his own fate around his neck. And what's so, so that's what's ancient about it in a way. That's that's the Oedipal, the classic Oedipal story going all the way back to the origins of tragedy. The character is our fate, and it's our fate not to understand or see our own character clearly until it's too late. But on top of which is this quintessentially modern gesture that Shakespeare makes in the direction, I mean, we would say as post-Freudians of Freud, but I think it's kind of, you know, it transcends even that, you know, um, where essentially this is a play about people who feel guilty about what they've done, can't consciously process it and go crazy. It's their own mind that's turning against their own minds. So that when the one religious figure in the play says, therein the patient must minister to himself, you know, nothing in Shakespeare's universe or worldview subscribes to the idea that piety is the answer to the human condition. So that lands in a different way. It's, it's, it's sort of, you know, the tragedy, Isaac, is that, is that self-knowledge, it, it's not that people want power and commit heinous acts to get it. It's that self-knowledge is somehow both urgently necessary and impossible, and everything flows from that um, essential, you know, human tragedy. I agree with that, Stephen. And I would also say that one of the things that maybe I found refreshing about this is that it's not the angle on the material that I take when I teach it or that I would take when directing it, which sort of roots it in the the midlife crisis realization that that 
you can realize all your ambitions, but no one gets out alive. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, the play is this like out of control roller coaster heading to the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Right. And that is not what this version of the play is about to me. This, this version of the play is about being lost in a uncaring, possibly malicious uh, universe that is always two steps ahead of you, no matter what you're trying to do. And, um, I, I, and about how, you know, no amount of self-knowledge as, as you put it, Stephen, is going to help you navigate that really all it's going to help you realize is how lost you are. And I, I found that very affecting and actually really scary. I found watching this film scary. Maybe I'm a it's, wimp. It's a, but, no, it's a horror movie. But, I, but agree. I, was, he did I, it I as... thought it was like a work of cosmic horror in yeah. a way that was really deep and uh, uh, affecting. And I think uh, some sh- uh, another shout out <laughs> for, for how it accomplishes that is um, Carter Burwell's score, which is, I think, one of the best he's done in years. I just found it really affecting. I don't know. I was really shaken by it. Julia, I'm turning to you and seeking some support. I do not want you to trash this movie. I think people should absolutely see it. It's a it's an utterly original interpretation of Macbeth. The fact that I didn't happen to be emotionally drawn into the story did not keep me from being very glad that I had seen it and it being haunted by many things about it, especially the witches and the imagery surrounding the witches turning into crows and coming through the fog. I mean, that stuff is just stunning. It could be a silent movie. It could have no dialogue and it would still be great. But is there not something, Julia? Do you not feel that there was some lack of, I mean, chemistry is the wrong word for, for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. It's not like we want to see them striking sparks off each other. But I didn't feel the history of the relationship or understand why at that moment they embarked on this journey. I mean, this is part of the trickiness of making the middle-aged rather than, you know, the usually younger Lady Macbeth and Macbeth is that why would they wait this long to go on this ambitious journey? What is their history? There's the you know famous and much discussed mysterious speech that Lady Macbeth makes about, you know, these breasts have given suck, but I would take the baby and dash its brains out in order to, you know, achieve my ambitions. And everyone has always asked throughout the history of interpreting this play, well, what does that mean, right? Did their child die? Um, you know, what's their plan for succession? Are they obsessed with ambition precisely because they don't have a child to pass the crown onto? And I didn't feel like this movie addressed that or the fact that, you know, if they had had a child, it must have died. I mean, I don't know. Not, not that that needs to be explicitly laid out, but there's something missing in the connection between those two characters in this movie that just just kept me from quite believing in their complicity. I'm afraid I'm not going to ride to the rescue, Dana, because I, I, I with my boring sensibleness, <laughs> like the the... even in more full renditions of Macbeth, I've still had trouble. Like, you know, it's like the part of me that's like, why did Raskolnikov kill the old lady? It's like, why are they doing this? It makes no sense. Like, Mm -hmm. just calm down. Enjoy being (laughs) in the royal court. Like, anyway. So, Julia, life life coach to the Macbeth. (laughs) Like, I mean, they do manifest their, you know, they do manifest their dreams. <laughs> they sure do. They do. They yeah. were practicing the secret, I guess. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, they had a vision board of being <laughs> king and queen. Uh, like to me, that's never been the most interesting part. And maybe that's me missing the point. Maybe you can't. I, maybe the weight. I, I did feel that the weight of the Sound and Fury speech at the end, uh, it didn't land in the way that it sometimes has because Denzel and McDormand seem a little more remote in this production, but even when you're deep in the psychology of these craze bows and other productions, like, uh, I don't, you know, it's never been one of my favorite plays. Like I, I'm, I, the, as a student of human emotion, Shakespeare is completely unparalleled, but this particular set of emotions has never been the one that resonates most for me. So I both like see what you are referring to Dana and yes I agree they they sort of jump right into their bonkers plot and you don't have as as organic a sense of why it is that this couple would embark on this plan at this moment but I don't know kind of didn't matter to me like you know they're headed towards the damned spot anyway so I don't know somehow it worked 
Yeah, it's, they it, they oddly down or not oddly. I mean, they 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 made a choice and they downplayed tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, which which in other productions it all hurdles toward that that moment of realization that it signifies nothing. Okay, well, it's I think the panel is basically saying you should see this. It's on streaming on Apple. TV Plus. Uh, I think you should definitely check it out. I was floored by it. Isaac, as always, a complete pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, good luck with the book. I'm going to be talking to you in the next few days. Uh, see you soon, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we talk business. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, our first item of business is to remind listeners that this week we have a live event happening in New York City at the Strand Bookstore. It's going to be in the beautiful Rare Books Room at the Strand. This will also turn into next week's Slate Culture Gab Fest. But if you're in the New York area, you can come hear us tape it in person. This is a special event designed around the dual book release for my book, Cameraman, which you may have heard Stephen Metcalf blathering about over the past few months, and the new book, The Method, by Isaac Butler, a longtime friend of the podcast and frequent contributor to Slate. And if you're new to this podcast and have never heard of either of these two books or people, to remind you, my book is about Buster Keaton. Isaac Butler's book is about method acting and the history of method acting in the 20th century. In an interesting way, I think these books kind of weave together, as we've talked about a few times on this show. So at this event, hosted by Stephen Metcalf, we're going to dig into some of those similarities and differences and also the experience that Isaac and I had more or less concurrently writing our books. We will also have a listener Q&A for the audience. So if you're in the New York City area, you can buy a ticket to this event and we will put a link in the show notes for how to do that. Again, this event is going to be tomorrow night, Thursday, February 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time at the Strand Bookstore in downtown Manhattan. Our second item of business, Steve, is just to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, it comes from a listener question, a couple of listener questions, actually. When we talked about Don't Look Up, the new Adam McKay comedy about climate change, a couple of listeners wrote in and said, could you expand your discussion into culture and and climate in general? How has the ecological crisis impacted your relationship to culture, and how should we think about representing this crisis to ourselves? That came from a listener named Ben. Another listener by the name of Stu wrote to us and said, how do you think motion pictures will handle the issue of climate change in the coming years? Stu also enjoyed Adam McKay's film, Don't Look Up, and thought it did a good job at the thing that we all thought it did a bad job at. I think this is a complex question to ask about how, when, if to handle climate change in art or really any sort of pressing issue. How do you handle it in a way that people will want to watch, be entertained, but also think? So we're going to think through both of those questions in today's Slate Plus segment later in the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and many other shows have those bonus segments too, and of course, you get unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate. And of course, you also support our work and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships are really, really important for Slate, so if you can, please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Well, kind of out of nowhere, I guess. The comedian and actor Joe Rogan. I knew him from the old uh, great 90s sitcom news radio. He's become one of the biggest stars in podcasting. His show is downloaded tens of millions of times per month. Last week, Neil Young, the singer-songwriter, posted a public letter saying he wanted all of his songs removed from Spotify, the streaming service which platforms Rogan's podcast because of Rogan's habit of spreading misinformation about COVID-19. Let's. Uh, I needed a flavor of Rogan. I'd never. I'd never gotten one outside of his uh, sitcom turn. But m- let's get a little flavor of him. Here he's uh, talking to the comedian Dave Smith about vaccines. Please I think you should get vaccinated if you're vulnerable. I think you should get vaccinated if you feel like you're, my parents are vaccinated. I've encouraged a lot of people to give, and people say, "Do you think it's safe to get vaccinated?" I've said, "Yeah, I think for the most part it's safe to get vaccinated. I do. I do." But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no. Yeah. You, are you healthy? Are you a healthy person? Like, look, don't do anything stupid, but you should take care of yourself. You yeah. should, if you're, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, and like, I don't think you need to worry about this. 
Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree with you. But there's a uh, lot of jobs that will tell you you need to have this. Well, that's what's but starting to happen now. Wor- people are worried about them doing it for their children. And we talked about this earlier, yeah. that the, 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 the you might have to have your, your children vaccinated. And, you know, I can tell you as someone who's both, both my children got the, va- the, the virus, it was nothing. I mean, I hate to say that if someone's children died from this. I'm very sorry that that happened. I'm not... I'm not in any way diminishing that, but I'm saying the personal experience that my children had with COVID was nothing. All right. Well, to discuss Rogan, his show, and Spotify's apparent dilemma, we're joined by Slate's own Justin Peters. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Uh, Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you back. You, in your piece for Slate about Rogan, uh, described his show as a kind of bizarro fresh air. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's as if Terry Gross uh, locked her guests in a room for three hours and got very high and talked about um, things that made no sense that only after listening for these three hours, you sort of get the Stockholm Syndrome where you start to feel, yeah, this this all makes sense that we're talking about um, whether we live in a simulation and cage fighting and stand-up comedy, and why children shouldn't get the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And presiding over it all is Rogan, who was on news radio, who used to host Fear Factor, who was a stand-up comic for a very long time, he still is, and through a series of really unpredictable occurrences, turned out to be one of the most important and certainly best compensated podcasters in the entire world. Well, I listened to a little bit of Rogan for the first time uh, yesterday. I found him surprisingly more personable and intelligent than I was expecting. He's not Alex Jones, but his politics are oddly hard to place. Claims to be liberal across almost every issue except guns, uh, is a libertarian, a, a buzzword that has a way of attracting young white male listeners. How would you describe his appeal and his politics and maybe how those two things interplay? Look, his show is a good show. It's, you know, my description of it just a minute ago might have implied otherwise, but you don't get to be this popular of a podcast if your show is trash. He's a comic who knows how to engage an audience. He's a fairly engaging interviewer, um, and he's completely unpretentious. And he's funny. Rogan's a funny guy. And if his show had just continued in the vein that it had when it started, when it was him interviewing other comedians and cage fighters, then it'd be a you know broadly agreeable thing to listen to during a road trip or something that, you know, no one would have any opinions about because no one would care what the Fear Factor guy is doing on his dumb podcast. Uh, But at a certain point, uh, Rogan decided to start bringing in people who actually have things to say on topics of broader importance to uh, politics and the world. And, you know, it's sort of his charm that when he brings on neuroscientists and doctors and authors and newsmakers. This is the fear factor guy asking unpretentious, uh, explain it to me like I'm five, questions to uh, people with academic appointments. And there's absolutely no talking down to his audience in this. And people like that. And (laughs) unfortunately, what it's become is he brings a very specific sort of guest on And in the spirit of not talking down to them, he also doesn't challenge them. And that's sort of a problem when the stuff he's not challenging are dumb statements about who should and shouldn't get the COVID vaccines. Yeah, Justin, this is reminding me a bit of after 1-6, after whatever we're calling it, the failed coup d'etat in January of last year, we had a segment on this show where we we just all watched some right-wing media. We watched some Fox and we watched some OANN and just sort of looked at how that event was being treated by right-wing media. And then as now, with this experience with Joe Rogan, who you would not classify, you know, as as straight right-wing, I realize 
I just had this similar sense of, I mean, I just, I felt like I understood the red pilling process from the inside a bit more because to a surprising degree in both cases, the discourse that was being put forth sounded reasonable, you know, and there were even, you know, in talking about the the events of 1-6, there were these sort of plausible sounding um, explanations being laid out about why these people wilding out had absolutely nothing to do with anything that Donald Trump had said in his speech. And it was just an unrelated event. And that kind of creation of, you know, a, a, an even reasonable sounding discourse around something that is clearly trying to contain, you know, a lot of much more aggressive social energies was something that I really recognized from that form of right wing media. But I wonder if you, Justin, or also Julia and Steve have thoughts about how this kind of language, you know, the Joe Rogan, maybe you might call it more libertarian or something, you know, just I'm just asking questions, kind of not allied with any ideology kind of angle differs from, you know, more traditional right-wing media that is really pushing disinformation aggressively. Yeah, I mean, so I spent hours listening to Joe Rogan this weekend, which means I only watched, like, listened to a small fragment of four episodes, and yet it was still, like, eight hours of listening because it's they're just so long. Like, most of the interviews are two, three, four hours long. Um, And I was also struck by how non-crazy he sounds except for if you know all the questions he's not asking and I think I mean it's so interesting you know Justin you wrote this analysis of Joe Rogan as a cultural figure back in 2019 before COVID before the Spotify deal before he was making 100 million dollars he's only gotten bigger since then but so much of what I heard was exactly nailed by the piece you wrote um in that there's like an invisible ideology to what he's doing and that is what seems so insidious about it. Like he does seem, you know, he does, he presents himself like Terry Gross. I just talk to interesting people. We shoot the shit. It's, you know, we get to some interesting stuff. I'm not afraid to say the things you won't hear somewhere else. There's a lot of that um, sense that I'm giving you the real dish and you know, whatever, there's some value to that. And I think there's some lesson to to that for those of us who produce, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media um, in that uh, finding a way to, a responsible way to air some of the alternate views and challenge them um, with less kind of disdain and contempt than you do sometimes here in, in media outlets might be better than pretending those ideas don't exist or beyond the pale. I don't know. It's like not actually crazy to recognize that the importance of a 21 year old getting a vaccine and a seven year old getting a vaccine are different. And the opinion he espoused in that clip, though certainly not my own or one that I think is particularly responsible or good for society is is not actually a crazy thing for a person to individually think. But the problem is he's he's not inviting on guests who challenge him. And then the guests he's inviting on, he's barely challenging. You know, he did a four-hour conversation with Jordan Peterson last week. and, I, and <laughs> That and, sounds like a nightmare to listen to. And Peterson is a frequent guest. And, uh, and I, like, listened to the beginning of it. Um, and, and, you know, he did some light fact-checking. There was one erroneous fact. Peterson claimed that 7 million children die per year of indoor particulate uh, something, something, air pollution. All of this was by way of Jordan Peterson arguing, like just like I was shouting to myself on my walk, like straw man, straw man. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, um, com- completely um, spurious argumentation that he doesn't challenge at all. Um, so it, so there's this, there's this kind of patina of neutrality and like just a dude talking to some people, but there's an underlying you know, subject selection that that is blinkered in its own way that's that's invisible, I think, to some of the listeners. And it makes, you know, it makes me wish, like, someone could program Joe Rogan's show for him and have him bring on a bunch of people who would challenge him and, and encourage him to challenge other people because he does have a certain weird skill. Julia, I just wanted to respond very quickly to something you said earlier. I understood the point you were making and agree with it. That's 
a, a superficially rationally sounding discussion to have about whether a perfectly healthy, very young person ought to get vaccinated if the unit of consideration is the individual. The problem is, and this is what the buzzword libertarian actually refers to and signifies currently, is a totally antisocial worldview that takes by which overwhelmingly white males take their own worldview to be the same thing as the world and then uh, hold them account only to them, supposedly only to themselves. Hence the overlap between the inability to actually be challenged by an outside voice um, and hence the inability to consider that getting vaccinated or wearing a mask is something you do because of your debt to the social whole without which you as an individual couldn't and wouldn't exist. I mean, that's the point of view that's myth- missing. It's not. It's not simply a set of challenging facts or or sort of topical, you know, easy easy to place on the political spectrum points of view. We're talking about a form of psychosis where individuals exist as atomistic units in a complete social vacuum. Whereas, just the very first thing you tell your kids is is think about how your actions inure to the benefit or disbenefit of other people. And there's just that anti-sociability that underlies this very smooth, personable, superficially intelligent tone of the show. That's so interesting, Stephen, so well put. And that's what I mean by the insidiousness of the disjunct. Like when you're listening within it, he seems very sociable. He, see, he doesn't seem anti-social. In fact, he seems nicer than, you know, the sort of mainstream media people that won't talk to the discredited vaccine doctor anymore. You know, he's he's just friendly to everybody, except for that you don't notice all the everybody's who aren't there and uh, the the regard for the individual, usually white male individual, uh, is is like an underlying structure that is not examined. But what I'm curious about Justin, for you is having done this dissection of him as a cultural figure in 2019, you know, what do you, has he evolved since then? And what did you make of his statement last week um, saying, oh, I'm going to try and do better about misinformation? I mean, one thing, and just briefly, one thing that struck me just in a couple of the episodes I listened to, I I heard him talking to Jewel um, and saying like, I'm just a guy sitting down, like, I don't prepare for this. And then I heard him talking a few months later to Whitney Cummings about like all the work he does reading books to prepare for his future conversations. And it's like, all right, he, he's trying to have it both ways about whether he's, you know, uh, prepared or not holding these people to account or not. Oh, he hasn't, he hasn't evolved at all. Um, other than evolve into a very rich man with Spotify's literal hundred million dollars that, they gave him. Um, he'll do this thing where he presents himself as a dumbass, and it's a good persona to bring on the air, and it's also a good persona to raise whenever his show gets significant criticism and Neil Young yells at him. He's like, I'm just a dumbass. I don't know what I'm doing. I just wanted to have a show. Actual dumbasses do not evolve their podcasts into uh, the world's biggest podcast with, you know, a $100 million payday from Spotify. Actual dumb people are too dumb to make that happen. So there's a true self-serving element in what Rogan says. And, you know, when he says that he's going to bring on uh, alternate viewpoints, he has had a decade and change to bring on alternate viewpoints. And when he came to Spotify, he's had ample time to bring in alternate uh, viewpoints. And instead, he is, you know, re-hosting the same people from the same uh, intellectual dark web uh, constellation broadly over and over again. Um, I do not personally believe that he is going to evolve his show or his booking in any respect, and why would he? he? If if Spotify dumps him, if if you know, you know, Stephen Stills pulls his music too. If all of the Canadian rock stars from uh, the sixties <laughs> and seventies take their music off of Spotify, 
Um, and Spotify's like, we can't lose any more Canadians. Uh, and they get rid of Joe Rogan. Um, Joe Rogan doesn't lose a single audience member. He'll just take whatever payout Spotify gives him and go back to putting his show up on YouTube. And then he will be able to claim that he was canceled. Uh, he, he's got the strong hand here to play. And um, he's going to keep playing the same hand that's got him uh, to where he is right now, in my opinion. All right. Well, uh, to my peaceable neighbors to the north, I say direct your emails to justinpeters at slate.com. Justin, that was a wonderful bracing rant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Joe Rogan. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Okay, as with uh, every third segment that I find almost completely flummoxing, Julia, I'm going to just lazily lob it over to you. But as I understand it, uh, the Mars company, Mars Wrigley, the you know iconic candy company, has decided to remake, uh, rebrand, not rebrand M&Ms, but the, the, the kind of little anthropomized characters that they play are going to change uh, in accord, as they say, they're going to make them more quote-unquote current and quote-unquote representative of our consumer. Among the various changes is the the you know, sort of uh, saucy cowboy boots, I guess, that the green M&M wore that were, I guess, gendering in, in a somewhat uh, archaic way. Uh, Steve, go-go boots, go-go boots. Go-go <laughs> boots, go-go boots are being, are being turned into like, you know, sensible Canadian footwear. Let's just slag <laughs> on Canadians through the whole frickin' <laughs> podcast. Julia, what, why is this of concern to you? I mean, I don't know that I would say that it is of concern. I think the thing that's most interesting to me is like, why would Mars, the company that owns M&M's, do this? Like, this is a media news cycle around an announcement around a brand evolution. So to recap, in the course of its marketing for the M&M's candy, the Mars company has established that the M&M's have various characters. In my experience, nobody knows what any of those characters are, except for <laughs> that the green one is a horny lady. And some of the advertising had suggested that she's a sexy lady. Upon reading the various reviews, it turns out that, in fact, prior versions of the M&M's had all kinds of characters, like the brown one is also a lady, possibly a businesswoman executive type, a kind of <laughs> hot in the boardroom kind of lady who wore stilettos. <laughs> Apparently, the yellow M&M was a real dope, also news to me. Um, and blue, orange, and red came in for less prior scrutiny. 
Now they all have slight revamps. Um, I will defer to CNN here for a recap. The most notable change is to the six M&M characters, colon, new shoes. Green has swapped her go-go boots for sneakers. Brown is sporting lower, more sensible heels. Red and yellow's shoes now have laces. Orange's shoes are no longer untied. And blue <laughs> shoes, while little changed, resemble what Anton Vincent, president of Mars Wrigley North America, described as a bad version of Uggs. Anton Vincent, why are you slagging your own redesigns new shoes? Anyway, um, the, the, there was also some characterological evolution as well. Um, the green M&M, though still sexy, is now meant to be appreciated more for her confidence and is wearing kind of low-top Chuck sneakers, Chuck Taylors. Um, and uh, the other thing that got a lot of news, oh, apparently the yellow M&M is going to be less dumb and uh, more optimistic, which is a very nice word for dumb. Um, and... <laughs> And then the orange M&M is going to be the M&M that appeals to Gen Z supposedly because he's the anxious M&M and they're the most anxious generation. I mean, I guess Steve. But his shoes are tied. I love that evolution for orange M&M, right? I'm anxious, but at least my shoes are tied now. Uh, I have to, Dana, before I throw to you, I just have to add a little uh, historical, you know, resonance here. I'll be the, I'll be the Isaac Butler of, of, of candy. Um, which is, uh, you know, there's a rumor that goes back to the 1970s that the green ones uh, in the M&M packet are an aphrodisiac. Did you guys ever hear this? This was, Oh, this yeah, was, that was a middle yeah, school standby. Middle you gave school somebody standby. a green M&M? That right. be, it was racy. Yeah, yeah exactly. for sure. For sure. Um, that made it to down to my generation. I love it. Uh, anyway, so, it, it, you know, I, the initial impulse to play off of that was actually in a weird way quite canny. I mean, the one thing, recognition being the single most important aspect of of marketing, we, the one thing we all knew about this, you know, somewhat inane anthropomorphic campaign was that the green M&M was, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I don't. I'm not on Rogan. I mean, I don't I don't know what words to choose, but however you want to construe a pair of go-go boots. So here is what is actually of concern to me. What is of interest to me is to just make fun of this for 15 minutes because it's funny. But what's of concern to me is, is this whole marketing campaign a troll? Like, I don't understand why as you would do this as Mars. And if you were doing it, why you wouldn't just like roll out some new ad campaigns where she's wearing... Chuck Taylor, like, you know, just thinking about the meetings, like, I almost want there to be a workplace comedy movie about this rebrand, like, what the <laughs> meetings, where they debated the go-go boots, like, it just seems so entirely kind of up your own ass, and, and, and also, like, a very important set of marketing decisions if your job is to sell M&M candies, but, like, the whole thing where the head of the president of Mars Wrigley North America is making fun of the boots of the new M&M design makes me feel like are they just trolling us and trying to get us to talk to, about M&Ms for 15 minutes and are we playing into their hands <laughs> like yeah I, I mean like here we are talking about them um I, I I and and I can't imagine any Gen Z person is like ah candy the problem with it before was it didn't reflect my generation's generalized anxiety about climate change and the end of the world and how there's no future <laughs> for us but now that I know that one of the candies in this bag is also anxious. I want this candy. Like <laughs> I think that's the funniest thing about this rebrand is that it is playing on, you know, it's 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 trying to position itself as somehow, I guess like more woke because I guess it's not sexist to not put go-go boots on the sexy M&M, but at the same time almost none of these characteristics that have changed in the M&Ms really have anything to do with any kind of social movement whatsoever, right? And so yeah, I think it has to be. And this isn't the first time. I can't think of another example at this moment. Maybe one of you can, but it does it wouldn't be the first time that some sort of big blasting PR release about a rebrand of some product seems like it is really just meant to make people almost mock the rebranding, right? It's sort of any attention is is better than no attention. So let's make people laugh about wokeness in the context of M&Ms. That seems much more likely to have been the primary driving factor for this than a lot of earnest people sitting around a boardroom saying, you know, we need representation in our M&Ms. Right. That's what I mean by a troll. Yeah, but, I, th I think that to a large degree it is probably a troll. But I, but I agree with you, Julia, that I don't understand candy marketing if that really is, you know, what the best minds in candy marketing can come up with right now. I think you guys are reading into the psychologies of upper level candy executives a little 
uh, a little speculatively. I would I would say think of them as you know institutional actors with certain motivations. One of which is to just sell as much candy as cheaply as possible for as large a profit and keep the stock price up, right? And and the other of which is to justify your existence in a giant top heavy bureaucracy that's probably completely unnecessary to the actual stated task, right? And so you got a bunch of people sitting around saying, "God, we got to do something," right? I mean, we just and also, by the way, you know, you know, okay, that's the mindless aspect of it is just, you know, you just, you know, sh- you know, you just write a 50 page report for no freaking reason. And then you're obliged to enact its conclusions. And all of a sudden you're doing things, you know, you, you don't even, you can't even really justify uh, in any, any way. But the other is like a perfectly rational one, which is, you know, you put out this thing that walks the line between a sincere attempt to be enlightened about, you know, identity issues, uh, admirable, but also has this trolling undernote, you know, also might appeal to a certain other segment. And the net effect is you get Twitter to talk about your product, you know, and the Twitter sphere, you know, and the social media sphere to talk about your product ceaselessly for 48 hours, you get, you know, what the suits call earned media out of it, it's a win. But then I think you're saying the same thing in a way that Julia and I are, that this is some some mixture of, you know, fumbling toward, you know, some greater equity and representation and just some really cynical marketing where, I mean, what it reminds me of, if you try to imagine the meeting where this was pitched was the episode of The Simpsons where they introduced the Poochie character onto the Itchy Scratchy <laughs> show. And they have the guy saying, we need to rastify this character by 20%. Can we put him in more of a hip-hop context? Forget context. He's got to be a surfer. Give me a nice smear of surfer. I feel we should rostify him by 10% or so. It's sort of that that level of marketing cynicism, but it's in the post-Itchy and Scratchy Simpsons age where they're able to kind of assume that mantle and say, here we are, cynically marketing our product. Isn't it funny? Ha ha. So... I guess they're having it both ways. I don't know. I mean, once again, I throw up my hands and just say, I, I guess they got what they wanted. I would say, and I've talked about this on our show in relationship to the femme fatale kind of archetype, that I'm sort of sad to lose the sexy M&M. And I sort of agree with people I've seen on Twitter who are posting things like, let the green M&M be slutty, <laughs> right? I mean, just let her own that. Isn't it, isn't it really taking away her representation? If you say, no, you have to have chaste little sneakers. Why can't she desire other M&Ms to her, no, her chocolatey got- heart's desire? They got they surfed the wrong wave of feminism there, right? There's that's actually quite behind the the curve as I understand. Can it. I can I make a confession? Somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, after the months where I didn't buy any clothes because clothes seemed so ridiculous, and in the middle of the months where I didn't buy any clothes because I was pregnant and clothes didn't fit me, and in some kind of like miasma of grief shopping, I bought myself a pair of white go go boots. They are oh yes, in my closet, unworn. Um, but maybe I'll just put them on for the rest of the day in honor of the old green M and M. Julia, I want to be there when you debut those white go-go boots. I promise I will not slut shame you. Um, I appreciate that, and, and, and it'll be a nice break from all the other times we hang out when that's all we do. <laughs> it's true, ceaselessly. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'll 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 uh, we'll ask for some. Listener email on this. What do you think of this rebranding? Uh, preposterous, cynical, mixture of both. All right, moving on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, I'm going to endorse a piece of old media this week, something that I came across in the old-fashioned way of listening to the radio. It was the day of my book release, so the day that you all recorded last week, but I wasn't on the show. I was having an amazing day because my book was doing way better than I expected and getting a ton of praise and attention, and so I was feeling great. 
And as I was cooking dinner, I just decided to put on the radio and see what I could find. I tuned the radio, it went to NPR, and I happened to hear this wonderful, wonderful edition of On the Media, the long-beloved NPR podcast, co-hosted by Brooke Gladstone, who I should say, full disclosure, is married to Slate's own Fred Kaplan. And it was just a wonderful episode of On the Media about one of my favorite obsessional topics that I've often endorsed things about on this show, which is early humans. And apparently, I did not know of this, but Brooke Gladstone, like me, is obsessed with early humans. And it's become a sort of uh, a hobby horse of hers over the years to you know, investigate the anthropological origins of human beings. And so this show is called Humans Being, Humans, Being. It's co-hosted by Brooke Gladstone and Annalee Newitz. And they, you know, interview anthropologists and archaeologists and people who are going on digs. And they talk about the difference between hominids and hominins, which I did not know about before hearing this show, and, uh, and sort of all the different branches that led to Homo sapiens. It's really fantastic, highly recommended episode of On the Media, and we'll link to it on our show page. Uh, fun. Uh, Julia, what do you have? That sounds like some major Dana bait. I love it. Um, <laughs> totally. All right. Well, because I live in California and it did not snow two feet near me, uh, it's always time to harvest something. And we are awash in delicious winter greens here. We've got chard. We've got kale. We've got spinach. We've got arugula. And it's glorious. But uh, it brings me to our listeners with both a recommendation and a request. The recommendation is a cookbook by Alice Waters called Chez Panisse Vegetables. This is a 25-year-old cookbook, came out in 1996, and it's the single best book to turn to if you have come home from the farmer's market with something you don't know how to cook, and she will have three or four simple preparations that are fucking excellent and help make the most of whatever bounty you've just grabbed from the ground. Um so shaping these vegetables and essential in any kitchen. I think I am remembering correctly that David Plotz of the Political Gabfest is the person who turned me on to this cookbook like 12 years ago. Um, if not, give him the credit anyway. But uh, great cookbook. Oh, my God. Yeah. A total classic. Now the request. I used to be one of those people who could just make delicious salad dressing. Like no recipe, make a little vinaigrette, stir it up in the bottom of a, a mug, whip you know throw some some acid some fruit juice some vinegar maybe a little mustard maybe not some herbs whatever i used to just like have the knack and i've lost it like you know those batters who like lose their swing like i have the salad dressing yips like i can't i don't know i it's like i maybe i don't have the right vinegars i'm not sure but i've just completely lost my knack for salad dressing at the exact moment that I'm drowning in delicious California winter greens. So I am sending out the bugle to our listeners. Please send me on Twitter to culturefestatslate.com either your favorite salad dressings or your favorite resources for salad dressings. At one point I was Googling like all salad dressing cookbook, which there doesn't seem to be, but maybe that's wrong. <laughs> anyway, help, help, help. I used to be a salad dressing pro, and now I am a salad dressing dud. And Wait, at, I, I at, have one response right here and now. Sorry, finish your sentence. No, go for it. Help me. So there's a newsletter that's all about salad. It's called Department of Salad, and it's by Emily Nunn, <laughs> who's this cook, cooking and food writer who's really funny, and uh, and I highly recommend it. I've only made a couple things from it, but I'm sure she has endless you know, disquisitions upon dressing and the various ways to make it. And I, it's a free newsletter, so you must subscribe. All right. Of course, there's a newsletter called Department of Salad. Good to know. Great. <laughs> help, help me like Dana helped me. Follow her example. Step into her go-go boots. Uh, I love it. Okay. Well, when in doubt, uh, keep it simple, endorse prints. I, uh, had a friend who, um, thanks to however many years it's been now of COVID is a little depressed, maybe first time in her life. And I, um, I, uh, I suggested listening to the song Sweet Baby by Prince from 1992. It's just, I don't know that one. It's just, the crazy thing about Prince is how deep the discography goes. I mean, the catalog is just in, insane, right? There's a period where I didn't really listen to him anymore, having regarded Sign of the Times as the greatest album, you know, ever. Uh, and then I kind of lost track of Prince for a little while. It comes from 92. It's, I think, his first or second record with the new power generation. It's just a great, great, slow, mid-tempo soul song. Uh, with falsetto vocal vocals and it's you know he sometimes plays all his own instruments here he's using a band and backup singers to great great effect Stand tall, tall, sweet baby, baby, don't you fall. 
a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, tonic to the winter blues. Check it out. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. The introductory music to our show is by the wonderful Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.